take your Bibles with me this morning, will you? It's turning them to the book of Hebrews and our ongoing study of this great book of the Bible. Turn to chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, begin reading this morning in verse 8. Hebrews the 11th chapter, and now follow along as I begin reading in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Shall we pray together this morning? Lord God in heaven, oh, how hallowed be thy name. Blessed are you, Lord Jesus, among men. Blessed are you, Lord God and Jesus, your Son, in our hearts. Lord, we pray this morning you'd lead us to the rock that is higher than I. That we would come under the shelter of your strong stature. That we might trust you. We might see you as the great pillar that upholds the life of our strength and our faith. So we pray with the disciples, Lord, we believe. But we pray that through these words this morning, you would increase our belief, help us believe. And we ask your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying faith that pleases God. The impossibility of any other way of pleasing God has been presented to us in this very chapter of the book of Hebrews, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We've looked at Abel, we've looked at Enoch, we've looked at Noah, and now we look at Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, that true father of faith who's evidenced throughout the entirety of, of Scripture is given to us in so many forms and so many ways. In the Old Testament as well as the New, he is marked out for us as the one who is the father of faith. If you want to understand the difference of being one who trusts in the law and yourself, Abraham is then used as the contrast, who trusts in the Lord God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So though he did the works of God, his faith was in the person of God and in the promises of God. And from that faith, he stepped out in the first place, in verse 8, by faith in obedience. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. When he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to a place where he would be shown, he did not know, he would be shown later, he obeyed that very command from God. And so he became for us the father of faith that is evidenced through his obedience. Because faith that pleases God trusts God. We live in a world where trust is growing thin. 
Upon whom do we depend that we can say, I trust them? And in particular in our lives to those who have power, those who have position, those who have authority, and those who wield all of those things. To whom shall we go and say, I have an implicit trust in him, in her, in them, in this institution, in this body? Answer that in your heart and say, would you trust them with your life? We might say a hearty, no way, Jose. Where do we find trust? But because we live in such a world, now we do not give our trust very easily. Is that not also true? Now we are of the suspicious ones even of the conspiracy theorists so easily brought to our attention because we can't find someone to trust. But at the heart of every man, we are made to look for something, for someone to direct our trust toward, to place our trust in. It is in us by the design of God to look for that one to put our faith in, our trust in, our confidence behind. And I'm here to show you the pattern of Abraham. For he found no one on earth worthy, as you find no one on earth worthy, because no one on earth is worthy of complete trust. Among men we are all fallen. And though we may even be saved and redeemed of the Lord, yet we do one thing for certain, and that is to fail. It was years ago, there was a movement called Promise Keepers. It was to bring men to leadership, which is definitely something that needs to be done. There was an oath that was to be taken and certain promises that were to be kept. And I remember one particular pastor who spoke out somewhat derisively of that movement. And he said, well, I'll tell you something. We're all promise breakers. He says, I'll guarantee you all those promises I would break. And it shocked people but it was correct theologically. For even these people of faith that we are studying, we'll find that each one has a failing, a failure, including Abraham, including Sarah. Yet they are to be for us an example of faith. Not in themselves, because they fail, but in the God who promises, who keeps his promises. This is the cure to thinking that God makes promises and then pulls them back in some sort of arbitrary way. Oh, he's done with you. You blew it. Promise is rescinded. God is not like men. Who can you trust? Abraham, our father of faith, says, trust God. God promised. Abraham trusted and that equals patience. Patience. Faith that trusts God is patient. This life of Abraham, as it's laid out here in Hebrews, is giving us five proofs of trust. Five proofs that we trust God that we may be able to prove that we truly have placed our faith, our full trust in God. Abraham began that proof by obeying God. And now secondly, the proof of Abraham's faith was by waiting patiently for God. Waiting patiently for God's promise to come about, to be revealed. Patience. Isn't that our favorite topic? Next to humility and submission, probably is right up there in the top 10 of the 
hardest for us to swallow as sermons go. Amen? But this one's about patience. Let's look at verse 9 again. By faith, he being Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of that same promise. Verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Let me just do a little disclaimer before I begin too far this morning and say I have no idea how far I'm going to get. And some of you are saying inside your head, well, Pastor, you never have, so what's the difference? Okay, that's true. Here we go then. Be patient with me. <laughs> gotcha. Hudson Taylor, known as one of the greatest missionaries of the former era, an era I don't think will ever be repeated. But he said this, and I quote, he said, there are three qualifications for missionaries. Patience, patience, patience. I think that's applied to all ministry, whether it's missions, pastorate, or normal Christian ministry. And that's you. Patience. So this morning, I want to show you from the life of Abraham and this discourse that has been given to us here in Hebrews chapter 11 about Abraham, two secrets, two secrets to waiting patiently. How do we wait patiently? But before I do that, I want to say this. I want to say that we even understand in a societal way that patience is a finish it virtue. Somehow we all know that it is virtuous to have a quality in your being, of your character, that resides patiently as we live. But why is it a virtue? Why it is a virtue? And what even is a virtue? You know, we don't even hardly use that word anymore in normal descriptions of a person. You see, a virtuous person. That's a virtuous woman. What does that mean? Well, it does mean one of moral strength. Moral strength. So a virtuous woman has the moral strength to do what's right. And also, patience is what's right. Also, a definition of virtue is manliness. Boy, has that fallen out of our vocabulary. One, manliness. And two, what's the definition of it? Being virtuous. The Greeks, and by the way, we are studying a book that has been written to the Hebrews in the highest Greek form. <laughs> I find it sort of, you know, oxymoronic, perhaps. No, paradoxical, better. No, odd. Perhaps even funny. That to convince the Hebrews of the truth of their own Savior, of their own great high priest, of their own people of faith, one from the Hebrews has written to the Hebrews who are now spread around and in the Greek world at this time the highest form of Greek rhetoric. And for these Greeks, they understand virtue. They're living in Greek culture. It is honored. It is glorified. It is arete, the word in the Greek. We have this word in our Bibles placed strategically at times. We find in First Peter or Second Peter chapter one, add to your faith virtue. Add to your faith virtue. I think Abraham is adding to his faith arete, and so is Sarah. This virtue, which means to be of moral strength and manliness that is in its essence pleasing to God. The Greeks were always trying to please their gods, little g, and followed arete, virtue, 
or honor even if you will, to please them. We have this word used in our Bibles to help us please our God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And faith is, number one, obedience. And now this morning, it is waiting patiently. So two secrets to waiting patiently, which is, of course, a virtue. First, you must live as a pilgrim. The first secret to waiting patiently is that you must, like Abraham, live as a pilgrim. A pilgrim. What's a pilgrim? That is one who is wandering. One who is on a journey. The great book, Pilgrim's Progress, he is progressing somewhere. He is on a pilgrimage. They used to do pilgrimages across Christendom, and many of them attempting to end, or at least along the way, stop at certain holy sites, hopefully concluding their, their journey in Jerusalem, the holiest place, a pilgrimage to find God. You must live as a pilgrim, one who is journeying. It tells us here in verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land. We can call that he was a pilgrim in the land. He lived in the land. He walked about the land, but he was not an owner of this land of promise. He lived, it tells us, in such a way as in a foreign country, a country not his own. Some of you have had the privilege of going to another country that is not your own, not the United States of America. Some even here perhaps have even emigrated from another country. I find it very interesting those who have left their home country and come to another country, and even though they adopt it with open arms, they just can't help themselves from talking about their past in the old country. They're foreigners in a new land, even if they adopt it and the place adopts them. My dad was such a man. Though he loved this country, yet he would and could not help himself from telling us about the old country, we thought ad nauseum, now we realize, not often enough. But he, in a sense, was a foreigner. Abraham, in his faith, needed to grow in patience and not grumble about it about the situation that he is in, living as a foreigner in this land that we call the land of promise, meaning God had promised it to him. Even as we read along further, we read that he was dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. You might say, wait a minute, he might have dwelt with Isaac, his son, but you know, with Jacob as well? I don't think so. Wasn't Abraham gone? Well, the with is not with meaning they were together in the tents, but in like manner. Abraham lived in a tent like a foreigner, like a sojourner, like a pilgrim in the promised land. His son Isaac, the next generation, lived in tents like a foreigner, like a wanderer in the promised land. And Jacob lived in tents like a foreigner, like a wanderer. In the same way, three generations were living in tents. Nomads, travelers, this is how they were dwelling. They put down no permanent roots. They were movers. They were nomads. They were, if you will, like the gypsies, owning none, wandering over it all. And in that land, by the way, they were not alone. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to where we started last week in Genesis chapter 12, in the first covenant giving with Abraham, 
And I want to revisit that this morning and remind you of just who it was that was in this land of promise that Abraham, at this point Abram, and his wife Sarah and their entourage, their family, were walking in. Let's review again. Chapter 12, verse 1, Genesis. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house. Here it is, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4 now, So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land, here it is, of Canaan. So they came into the land of Canaan. Now zero in on verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place of Sachem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. Now this must have been quite the landmark sort of tree that everyone would know what he's talking about. This great tree, this terebinth tree of Morah, but I want you to get the indicator of land ownership that is given by the Lord here of where Abram was sojourning. Here it is. And the Canaanites were in the land. So the Canaanites were the people, the people group that was in possession of the promised land. God promised it so ever clearly. But who lives in it were Canaanites surely. And not only that, I want to take you a little farther along to chapter 14 of Genesis and verse 13. And we get another indicator of another group of people that was living in and owning the land, one of which became a friend of Abram and even an ally in the great war where Abram took on all of these great kings who in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah had fought a great fight and then had taken Lot captive. There was a one who was a friend who had better ownership of the land at that particular moment than our pilgrim, Abraham. Look at verse 13. Now then, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. An Amorite was a friend. He was not of Abram, but he was a friend and an ally in the land. There's another one of your owners. Now I want to take you to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, I want you to look at verse 18. And here we're going to find a list of of those who are owners of the land in which Abram is now patiently walking and living in tents as a pilgrim. Note, verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying... And by the way, this is the great covenant. This is the great covenant where God answers Abram's question. Abram's basically saying in the first verse of this chapter 15... You've promised me this. How do I know I can trust you? How do I know and be sure of it? And God says, okay, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's verse 9 if you want it. Now I paraphrase. He cut them down the center, laid them out, waited, kept the ravens off them. And then God came in the evening, as the old King James says, like a burning oven. And he made covenant with Abram by himself, God himself, going down the middle of these split carcasses, evidencing that he alone was taking responsibility of this promise to fulfill it. 
If Abraham had been responsible for filling this promise, God would have made Abram walk with him between these halves of the carcass. And then the message would be, if either of these two parties, God or Abram, fail to keep this promise, then what happened to these animals being split and laid out will happen to them. But God made himself the sole responsible agent of this covenant with Abraham. He placed all of the responsibility on his own shoulders as God and walked through it. And then he tells Abraham many things, but I want to concentrate on the land and those who are in it, for they're outlined in verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, here it is, to your descendants, I have given this land. Now, there's a lot of people that live in a lot of places in the earth, but there's one thing certain. The overall owner of all the land of the earth is singular. God, who created it, owns it. God declared that himself. This is mine. I am sovereign. I give it to whom I will. And he sovereignly is giving these areas to Abram for all time with sole responsibility on the shoulders of God, if you will allow me to use that anthropomorphism. God is spirit. He doesn't have shoulders is what I mean. I mean, he's taking the responsibility. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. Here are the boundaries from the river of Egypt. I wonder when, which one that might be. To the great river the river Euphrates. Now he uses people groups that are dwelling in the land to outline exactly where this is. It is the land, verse 19, of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Raphim, the giants, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Between these two rivers, all the lands that these people have, plus now we've mentioned the Canaanites, that's yours, I give it to you. Yet, he is living by faith in a tent and wandering through the land with other people on it, other people owning it, and he is dwelling there as a foreigner in the land. How do I know this is going to work? Because God promised. And you know what? My mentor, Pastor Howe, told me a very great, a great truth about eschatology and an eschatology that includes this truth. The land of Israel belongs to the people of Israel. And why? He says, Pastor Howe said it this way. I don't think I can improve on it. He said, God didn't lie to Abraham. This would solve a lot of the theological conundrums and problems that so-called theologians on different sides of the theological wall who are pulling the pins from their papers known as hand grenades and lobbing it over into the other school so it can go off so that school can pick up the pieces and write another paper in response, pull the pin, throw it back over, and they can continue their beloved fight. If they would just... Read their Bibles. Here it is. God didn't lie to Abram. He didn't lie. He gave them the land of promise, and they dwelt there in the state of promise. The faith. Isaac and Jacob never had a permanent home. Abram had no city, no land, just the promise, just the promise of that land. And by the way, those who say it's already been fulfilled, they've never held the land from the Euphrates all the way to that great river in Egypt, the Nile. Never in all of history, even under King David, even under King Solomon. And after that, it all went downhill, so 
doesn't get any better. But I must move along. God's timing is essential to patience. Patience as a part of trust. God chose Moses, and then he took 40 years developing him before he called on him to go get his people out of Egypt. David was anointed by Samuel as king over all of Israel 13 years before, Aber, before David would ever have the subjection of all the people of Israel under his kingly authority. And for much of that time, he was a vagabond running for his life. William Carey, who spent 35 years in India as a missionary, and at the end of that time had only a handful of converts. All of these men learned from God, patience is a virtue, and patience is a measure of real faith. Because it trusts the promise of, of God. You must live as a pilgrim in this land to receive the land of promise. Let me give you some helps on the differences between being a pilgrim and being something else on the face of the earth. Let me give you four different categories. Only one should fit faith and trust. The first is a fugitive. You can live as a fugitive. Now, a fugitive is one who is running from home. A fugitive is one who is running away from home. We don't want to be that one. That's not patient nor trusting. A vagabond. A vagabond is one who has no home. No home at all. No home do they even want. That is not how we are to be either. There is also a stranger. A stranger is one away from home. Now that does apply to us in some senses, but even better than that is the fourth. There is a pilgrim or a sojourner. A pilgrim is one, listen to me, is one, now pay attention, who is on his way home. He is not wandering without purpose. He is not listless and without direction. He is wandering on his way to a promised destination, home sweet home. Where do we always want to get to in our life, right? When things are tough. When you were scared as a kid, where was it? Do you want it to run? Home for its protection, for its care. When you're loaded with the worries of the world, where is it that you want to go? I want to go home so I can deal with this. Even on one's deathbed, people in the hospital, what do they want to do? They want to go home. Brothers and sisters, that's the mindset of a pilgrim who's on their way home. Turning back to our book of Hebrews, and now I'd like to flip just to the 13th chapter, this idea is presented not only by way through Abram and his wanderings for the promised land, but for all Christians, these Hebrew Christians included, chapter 13, verse 14, listen to this. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. See, Abraham knew his children would not always be pilgrims, would not always be living in tents, but he also had faith, patient sort of faith, that they would eventually all arrive home safely. Did you make it home? I wonder if that might be the most commonly sent text message of our day. 
Did you make it home? Did you make it home safe? We did. Praise the Lord. That is patient faith. The first secret to patiently waiting is to wait like a pilgrim, to live like a pilgrim. The second secret to living patiently is this. You must look to your future home. You must look to your future home. Chapter 11 again, our verses on Abram. Chapter 11, verse 10. For he, Abraham, waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. See, this is where I get the patient point. He waited. Waiting is not something we are born good at. Mothers, can I have an amen? Children are not born patient. When they're hungry, they want to be fed now. When their diety is dirty, they want to be changed now. And they let you know it. Patience must be trained into them. It is not magically caught. Oh, they'll just see how patient I am in enduring my life, and they'll follow you. No, they will not. And God knows that about us too. And I'm going to get to that now in another week. But let's just suffice to say, God's a great teacher, and he teaches over time. But we have to set our eyes, set our mark upon a future home. He waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That is not a man-made city, that's a God-made city. That is not foundations laid by man, those are foundations laid by God. And this is the first we hear, isn't it? It's sort of a surprising note of revelation that Abraham was waiting for a city who in all of the texts about him in the Old Testament is never mentioned. Certainly the promised land for his people is mentioned, but it's only here in Hebrews, and then to this Hebrew audience, and now to us as well, that we find out that he was looking for a city that wasn't man-built. That somewhere along the line, God had revealed to this man of faith, we don't know when. We just know he was aware of it, he had this body of knowledge, and he looked at it with complete trusting faith that it was going to come about. There was a city that God built, and he was looking for it. Did you know this? That how long you wait patiently is directly proportional to how well you know God and trust Him. If you're impatient with God, then you don't know God very well. And not knowing Him, you can't trust Him. You will never trust someone you don't know. Is that right? That's right. That's why husbands and wives, let me tell you a secret. Whoever said absent makes the heart grow fonder was a liar. That is not true. Togetherness makes the heart go grow fonder because we are all insecure. Pass that word, pass that word, pass that word. Weak people. There's a better word. We're weak. Without constant communication, without constantly showing each other our love and our affection and building and growing together, or right away the cracks in the concrete show up. We got to keep ourselves together to have faith in each other or we'll start grumbling. Oh, say it ain't so, pastor. Well, maybe not you guys, but you know people like that. To know God is to trust God, but you can't know God without spending time with God. And then you can trust him as you wait for God to bring about what he has promised 
patiently, even as New Testament Christians turn in your Bible to Galatians. Galatians, a big problem in the church, was an opposite sort of faith to that of Abraham's, and that's why Abraham is listed in there quite frequently. So easily do Christians of all sorts and kinds want to go back to the old mosaic system of law and keep it so that they can mark on their calendars or in the little lists in their head how well they're doing before God so they can present it to their own mind and heart and to God as why they are good enough for God. But I remind you, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's not faith in you, that's keeping the law and keeping track. It's faith in God who keeps his promises. Galatians chapter 6, if you would, verse 9. Though we're sojourners and we are waiting for a future home, let's listen to this as well for all Christians, Gentile and Hebrew as well. And Paul says, and let us not grow weary while doing good. Now that doesn't happen, does it? I mean, while you're doing good, aren't you feeling good? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm taking care of what needs to be done. Wasn't Martha good at that? Martha was doing what she's supposed to be doing in the house. And there was Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, lounging away. Soaking in all the good discourse, and there's Martha <laughs> suffering and slaving in the kitchen. And she posts right before Jesus her complaint. She goes right past HR, right to Jesus, and says, Jesus, fix this. I'm a working, and she's a playing, and I'm not happy about it. And Jesus says to her very clearly and with great force of verbiage, Mary has chosen the better way. Now, I'm not going to do a whole lot with that today. You just chew on that. And if you wonder where it is, well, you can find it. It's in the Bible. But don't grow weary while doing good and go to the king and say, wait a minute. I'm a-working, and everybody else is a-playing. I'm tired of it. This is said because we all face this, amen? While doing good. How do we get through the doing good without complaining and growing weary? Comma. For in due season, we shall reap. This is a farming picture. This is a gardening picture. God gave us seeds, I think, to teach us patience, right? Said, okay, you want to grow a garden? You send away, and here come these little packets full of these little things and instructions. And you got to follow the instructions. By the way, let me just warn you about lettuce. Don't bury it too deep or you're going to wait a long time. But as soon as you sow a seed, what begins? Waiting. Patience must be employed. So whatever you're growing, if you're growing kids, you're going to wait. I think the Chinese were right in saying that we grow kids like trees, and it's the next generation that receives the shade. In other words, parents, you don't get much shade out of your own kids at least until your generation is fading. But waiting for the garden, waiting for the wheat, waiting for the corn, waiting for the potatoes, waiting for these things, you shall reap if you do not lose heart. I mean, what kind of gardener would you be if halfway through the season you go out there and there's those tomatoes, you planted them, and this is Montana, and tomatoes is hard. But I love tomatoes. I always have to try and grow tomatoes. But if you go out there halfway into the season, you've been babying them, they've been, you've been watering them, you've been fertilizing, you've been doing everything you're supposed to do, weeding around them. Isn't weeding fun? That's patience. If that doesn't have application to Christian life, I don't know what does. 
And then if at the midpoint, when there's no tomatoes yet, you just decide, I've had it. I'm not watering these lousy tomato plants anymore. I give up. And you go tell somebody about your gardening, and you tell them that story. How are they going to look at you? They're going to look at you like you're out of your mind. What's wrong with you? What do you mean you quit watering them? Don't you know you have to wait patiently? That's why God used this. That's why God gave us seeds. Every season we start again. The Christian walk. Do not lose heart. Verse 10, Galatians 6, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially of those of the household of faith. Well, I'm done with them. They're not growing fast enough for me. What's going on with these people? They're driving me nuts. Wait. God isn't finished with them neither. Some fruit's going to come. And there's more good news than that. Paul in Colossians, the third chapter. Paul says, if then you were raised with Christ, subjunctive, do you, do you know where you are? If you really are a believer, if you are, this is for you. If then you were raised with Christ, listen, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2, here's the mindset. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Abram waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, which he never saw, and he was just waiting for, and we wait the same way. Why? Verse 3, Colossians 3, For you died. For you died. Christian, you have died. You have died to an old life. You have died to an old way. Just like Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, God said, come, get out of that land and go where I'll show you. And he got up and he started walking. And then he made pilgrimage in that land and he waited. His old life died. And he walked a new life. Our old life died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, Paul says in verse 3. And then he says this in Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, what is this new life? Old life dead. That was life to you. New life now. Christ, for me to live, Paul said, is Christ. Christ to me is to live. When Christ, who is our life, appears, Paul says, then you, listen, then you also will appear with him in glory. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for this world that you can trust to deliver to you happiness? Or will you patiently wait for the happiness that is to come? Enoch. By faith, verse 5, Hebrews 11, Enoch was translated so that he did not see death, but was found because God translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory translated you've heard the saying he's so heavenly minded he's of no earthly good some ways we could say there's a truism there but in reality if you really are heavenly minded we might even say only the heavenly minded will be of any earthly good for they are living in patience patiently enduring because they look to a city. What city might that be? I want you to ruffle back in your Bible to a prophet. 
And even as I was putting this together, why did the prophets always get these visions? And then I remembered why are prophets sent? God sends a prophet to a people, to his people or to other people who've lost their way. Away from him they have wandered, and it's to him he's trying to bring them. And what does he give them but these glimpses of something for which to hope? Something to wait for. Ezekiel, the 48th chapter. By the way, the description of this place, this temple, known as the temple of the earthly kingdom thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ is there described from chapter 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47 to 48. I wonder if God meant for us to understand what the earthly kingdom was to look like. If he spent that many chapters doing it. At the very end of it is the coup de grace, is the grand finale, is the great thing to wait for as you patiently walk this world. This part of looking to your future home is this. Verse 30, let's pick up the reading there to get some context. These are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits. The gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, one gate for Levi. Verse 32, on the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Joseph, one gate for Benjamin, and one gate for Dan. Verse 33, on the south side, measuring 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Simeon, one gate for Issachar, one gate for Zebulun. Verse 34, on the west side, 4,500 cubits, with three, there are three gates, one gate for Gad, one gate for Asher, and one gate for Naphtali. All the way Around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. What eyes shall see? What ears shall hear? Our book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Wait a minute, that's not the city I just read about. There's another one. The word foundations was used in Hebrews before. And this Greek rhetorician has brought it back to our attention. And I bring you back to chapter 6, verse 1, just as we get homing in, because when I saw this, I said, Woohoo! In chapter 6, verse 1, the call for Christian maturity, says, therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, hear me now, let us go on to perfection, or on to maturity, not laying again, here it is, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Leave the first principle that you have to lay aside in faith is this repentance from dead works. Because every one of us want to work our way to heaven and that's the way of the dead. And we turn in faith to the promise of God that is our foundation. 
The foundation of real Christian belief is that our foundation that we once had of thinking we could work our way there is kicked out the door. It's knocked over. And now we're built on faith in the promises of God. And then we have Hebrews 11, 10, the foundations. God is our cornerstone, our foundation. His promises are upon that, are what we build upon. And we look to a city. We look to a city like Hebrews, now 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Did you hear that? But you, all of you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made complete or perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks of better things than Abel. What are you waiting for? Who can you trust? How will you go on patiently when times are tough? Not in your notes. For free. I'll give you Revelation chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia. Jesus the Christ writing to the church in Philadelphia says, and I quote, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere. You know, do you know what the old King James Version does? I know Rocky does. I know Talon does. They got it right there in front of them. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. Thou hast kept the word of my patience is the literal translation of this Greek. Believe me, trust me, keep going after me, I keep my promises. Because you have kept my command to persevere, or my word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, here's a promise. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Listen, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him a new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches that's a promise. What are we waiting for? I'm waiting for that. I've seen this. There's some good things here. But not like that. And I've been promised things. 
wondrous things. Not like this. This is it. You want to be happy? Trust the promises of God. And patiently wait and never give up. Never give in. Let's pray. Our Father God, we stand upon your promises today. We confess our weaknesses that we have not trusted you nearly enough. We have not known you dearly enough. Forgive us our unbelief. Help our unbelief. Drive us to yourself, O oh Lord, that we might know you and trust these promises are true and worth the wait. May we be pilgrims who are looking constantly toward the promise of your enduring city made without hands where we can join Abraham and Sarah and worship you. Blessed be the name of the Lord, the one and only promise keeper. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.